Hello everyone, hope you're going okay out there in isolation world. Uh, I hope your standards are not slipping too much as you stay home a lot. I um, I shaved off my isolation beard just before this, just so I'll give you the impression of being on the ball and with it. It's good to explore the scriptures together today. Ever since church services were first held in the English language, Christians have often said together in a Lord's Supper service three little sentences. Uh, they get referred to as a memorial acclamation. The three sentences are, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Members of Night Church might remember when Hugh Isaacs was with us last year as our interim minister. He tried to teach us some actions to go with that threefold acclamation. Uh, sadly, I can't remember any of the actions. Maybe someone else can post a video and remind us all. Anyway, it's a neat little formula summarizing what the Bible teaches about Jesus in the past, the present, and the future. And the last few weeks at church over Easter, we've reflected on Jesus' death as a one-time sacrifice for the sins of the world. And we've reflected on Jesus' resurrection, which is not only a past event, but also a present reality. He has risen today. Today, we're going to consider the future. We're going to consider the Bible's claim that Jesus will come again. Now, when you think of this kind of thing in the Bible, you may immediately think of the book of Revelation right at the end of the Bible. But the idea of Jesus returning is actually threaded all the way through the New Testament. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the end of Luke's gospel. Jesus dies, he's buried, but then his tomb is found empty. He appears alive to his disciples. As Luke's gospel ends and the sequel, the book of Acts, begins, Luke records for us the end of the resurrection appearances. He records Jesus' ascension, the day when the disciples saw Jesus being taken up into the sky and hidden by a cloud, the day when angels declared, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back. In the same way. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And the expectation that the Bible then introduces straight away is that Christ will come again. This wasn't some idea that was tacked on later when they got bored of their existing theology and wanted to add on something new and exciting. No, it was there from the start. This expectation is all through the Apostles' teaching in the book of Acts. It's there all through the New Testament letters by Paul and Peter and James and John. The expectation of Christ's return really drives everything that those guys did. In our New Testament reading today, we read the beginning of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Why don't you open it up in your Bible now, 2 Timothy chapter 4. As he writes this letter, Paul knows that his life is coming to an end. And so he's writing to his young apprentice, Timothy, to tell him how to carry on with the work of proclaiming Christ. Here in chapter 4, Paul urges Timothy to keep on preaching the message, even when times are hard. To persevere with correcting, rebuking and encouraging people. To endure hardship. To press on doing his job. That's the instruction he gives. But let's have a look at how he frames that instruction. 
In verse 1, Paul says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. That's the context for all the stuff he's urging Timothy to do. That Jesus is coming as judge. That Jesus is going to appear as king. The basis for pressing on doing what God has called you to do is that Jesus is coming. The future impacts the present. Jump down to verse 6. Paul says, I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Paul is looking forward to judgment day. That seems a bit crazy to us, doesn't it? It also seems kind of arrogant and presumptuous. How good does he think he is? But Paul never claims to be sinless. Elsewhere, he labels himself as the worst of all sinners. But that's not the point. The point is that he has clung on to Jesus, even when that was incredibly hard, even when it was very tempting to give up and do something else. He's clung on to Jesus, and so he knows that when he finishes the race, he will finish as someone who belongs to Jesus. And so Jesus, the judge, will be there saying, well done, welcome home. Now, you may say this is Paul the Apostle. He had a very particular calling. He's written half the New Testament. I guess he's entitled to a certain reward at the end. You might think it's different for us regular Christians. But read verse 8 again. Paul says, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I find those last few words captivating. This is Paul's description of all genuine Christians. He suggests that to be a Christian is to be someone who longs for Jesus to appear. Do you long for Jesus to appear? Do you long for him to come in glory and judge the living and the dead, as the creed says? Can you wholeheartedly say those words at the end of Revelation, Come, Lord Jesus? It's my observation that we don't always long for Jesus to appear. When we think about Jesus coming back, there's a whole lot of thoughts and feelings we might experience other than longing. And in the rest of this talk today, I want to explore some of those things that can stop us longing for Christ's return and see if maybe the truth from the Bible can help us reorder our desires. Now, here's the first thing that I think can sometimes stop us from longing for Christ's appearing. It's the speculation and controversy that so often surrounds this topic. A lot of the speculation is about the timing. Ever since the beginning, people have thought that they could somehow figure out when it would happen. Some 
mathematical formula or whatever. They'd make predictions. Oh, it's going to be next month. It's going to be next year. Terrible cults have sprung up around these predictions over the years. The predictions so far have been wrong every time. And this kind of embarrassment can make us just not want to think about Jesus returning at all. As soon as you say the words, Jesus is coming back, it makes you feel like you're one of those crazy people on the footpath with a sandwich board with a date written on it. So there's speculation about the timing. But then there's also controversy about the details. Christians have great debates about pre-millennial versus post-millennial views about whether there's a rapture before, after, or during a great tribulation. They debate whether political developments in the Middle East mean Jesus is about to come back, and so on and so on. There's controversy and complexity, and it might make you want to just leave the whole thing alone. Now, there's no time to look closely at those debates today. But just one thing I want to point out in response to both speculation and controversy is the way the Bible repeatedly says that Jesus will return like a thief in the night. That's in Luke 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Peter 3, Revelation 3, Revelation 16. This thief in the night image means firstly that you don't know when it's going to happen. Jesus himself said that he didn't know when he would return. And so expecting Jesus to come back is not the same thing as thinking that you can figure out the timing. The thief in the night image also suggests, I think, that Jesus' return will be a simple event. It will just happen without some complex preamble. Most of the time when the Bible writers talk about Jesus coming back, they see it just as a single event. Now, other Christians will disagree, but I'm persuaded that when the Bible talks about millenniums and tribulations and antichrists and spiritual battles, this is all talking about the whole of the age that we live in between Jesus' resurrection and his return. These signs of the times are things that happened in the first century, and they still happen today. They're not signs that Jesus is about to come back. They're signs that he hasn't come back yet. Jesus will come like a thief in the night, says the Bible. And so we can long for his appearing without getting caught up in speculations and controversies. But here's a second reason why we might not long for Christ's appearing. It's the topic of judgment. In our reading from 2 Timothy 4, we heard Paul refer to Jesus as the one who will judge the living and the dead. And sadly, there is a long tradition of churches using God's coming judgment to scare Christians into behaving themselves. And it might be that for you, when you hear Jesus coming back as judge, it's fundamentally a fearful thing that you would rather not think about. Let's think about fear and judgment for a minute. If you know that you've done wrong and you know that wrongdoing is going to be exposed and you'll be publicly shamed and punished, then that's rightly something to be scared of, isn't it? If you're going to approach God's 
judgment standing on your own two feet, representing yourself, then you're right to be afraid. All of us have fallen well short of God's glory. But if you're a Christian, that's not how it's going to work out for you. As a Christian, you don't stand before God's judgment seat on your own. It may well be that the way you've lived your life will be put on display. But what does Romans 8 say? Romans 8 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you come to Judgment Day and you belong to Jesus, then your sin has already been paid for and his righteousness counts as yours. And the verdict will be, you belong to Christ. Welcome home. And what everyone will be talking about at that point is not how bad Tom Barrett has been, but how wonderfully gracious God is. So we shouldn't let the idea of judgment put us off the return of Christ. In fact, in the Bible, the day of judgment is frequently presented as a very positive thing. Because the day of judgment is the day of justice. Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. You and I both know how imperfect human justice can be. There was a high-profile case recently of a senior Australian church leader who had been convicted of a serious crime, but then on appeal was set free by the High Court. And depending on who you talk to, people will say there was a failure of justice, either when he was originally convicted or when that conviction was later overturned. None of us actually know which one it is. But Jesus knows. At All Saints, we often pray for the persecuted church around the world, for our brothers and sisters who have their movements curtailed, their belongings confiscated, sometimes their lives taken because of their allegiance to Jesus. And there is very often no justice for them in this life. But Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. When Jesus comes, every loose thread of human justice will be tied up once and for all. As Christians, God's judgment is not something for us to fear. And God's justice is something that we need. And so the aspect of judgment doesn't need to be something that puts us off longing for Jesus to appear. Now, the third and final reason I think that we sometimes don't long for Christ's appearing is FOMO. This might be a familiar acronym, might be a way of life for you. If you don't know the acronym, FOMO is fear of missing out. FOMO is the reason people don't RSVP to parties just in case they get a better invitation. FOMO is why people endlessly scroll through social media day and night in case something happens and they miss out on it. The way that FOMO can work in relation to Jesus' return is that we can secretly think that when he comes back, life won't be as good as it is now. 
we can find ourselves feeling that when Jesus returns and this world is wrapped up and a new world begins, that there'll be some good things that are taken away from us. Have you ever had this feeling? I think this feeling can happen because we misunderstand the future or it can happen because we misjudge the present. Let's talk about those. We might misunderstand what God's coming kingdom is actually like. Now make no mistake, the new world will be different to the here and now. It won't just be a minor patch-up job. But nor will the new creation be some radically unrecognisable existence with nothing in common with the world we know. The new creation is physical, not spiritual. How do we know this? Because the risen Jesus is physical, not just spiritual. He was different, of course. But he wasn't just a ghost, he wasn't just a spirit. He ate food. He talked with his friends. People touched him. If I can be a little bit adventurous for the moment, I'm going to share that I find it helpful not to use the word heaven when I talk about the new creation. Not to use the word heaven to refer to God's coming kingdom. I know lots of Christians do use the word that way, and I'm not about to start becoming the word police. You won't find me correcting you on this. But just for myself, I find it helpful not to use the word heaven in that way. Because I'm not convinced that the Bible ever uses the word heaven in that sense. In the Bible, heaven is firstly the sky, the place where the birds fly around. And then, a bit more metaphorically, it's the place where God lives. The place where God lives is not physical, because God is spirit. But the ultimate Christian hope that we find in the Bible is not that we go off and live in some spiritual place with God, but that God comes down and lives with us. Our Old Testament reading today, we read Isaiah 65. It's a little picture of hope in the Old Testament. It speaks of a new heavens and a new earth. That is God making everything new. It describes this new creation as a place of peace and long life. And this image of a new heaven and a new earth is picked up in the New Testament in a few places. But in light of the resurrection of Jesus, the New Testament writers can now see that God's new creation is not just a place of long life, but of eternal life. Revelation 21 uses the new heavens and earth concept when it describes God making all things new. And it's noticeable that there it doesn't say, look, now people can go off and live with God in heaven. No, Revelation 21 says, look, now God's dwelling place is among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The Christian hope is new creation. The Christian hope is resurrection bodies. The Christian hope involves the blessings of this world being restored and transformed and perfected. There is nothing good that we will miss out on 
I suspect that this new creation FOMO thing really only happens for Christians in certain circumstances. You and I happen to live in a very peaceful and prosperous part of the world. It's not that bad things never happen to us, but it somehow seems that most of us enjoy good things most of the time. Tragedy and heartbreak do come, but I dare say for most of us they come as the exception rather than the norm. And this is actually a dangerous place for us to be. Jesus spoke about the deceitfulness of wealth. When things are going well, we can forget that this world is not God's kingdom. Things can look deceptively good so that we fear them changing. But if we look at the big picture, it's different. If we think about what happens behind closed doors, if we look at what happens in places where amazing medical care is not available, then we start to see reality. Those Letters from international aid agencies, which you choose not to read because they're a bit of a downer. They tell us about reality. Dare I say that coronavirus and the impact that it's had in places like China and Italy and Spain and the US. Coronavirus shows us the reality about this world. This world is a world where death reigns, where there is mourning and crying and pain and injustice and poverty and violent crime. And when we can face that reality about this world, that helps us to say, come Lord Jesus. Let's wrap this up. I can't just tell you to long for Christ's appearing. That's not how desires work, is it? I think you long for something when you can tell how good it is and you can tell how much you need it. So let me ask, do you realise how good it is for Jesus to come and rule the world? Do you realise how much this frustrated world is crying out for him to come and set it right? Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And there will be a crown of righteousness for all who have longed for his appearing.